my land and my people, the memoirs of His Holiness the Dalai Lama of Tibet. I hesitated, but then the National Assembly met and added its plea to the cabinets, and I saw that at such a serious moment in our history, I could not refuse my responsibilities. I had to shoulder them, put my boyhood behind me, and immediately prepare myself to lead my country as well as I was able against the vast power of communist China. So I accepted with trepidation and full powers were conferred on me with traditional celebration. In my name, a general amnesty was proclaimed and every convict in prison in Tibet was given freedom. At just about that time, my eldest brother arrived in Lhasa from the east. He had returned as abbot to the monastery of Kumbum, near the village where we had been born. In this Chinese-controlled territory, while he was abbot, he had been witness to the downfall of the governor under Chiang Kai-shek's regime and the advance of the armies of the new communist government. He had seen a year of confusion, oppression and terror in which the Chinese communists had claimed that they had come to protect the people and had promised them freedom to pursue their own religion and yet at the same time had begun a systematic undermining and destruction of religious life. He himself, he himself had been kept under a strict guard and subjected to an almost continuous course of communist argument until finally the Chinese had explained to him that they intended to reclaim the whole of Tibet, which they still insisted was a part of China, and to convert it all to communism. Then they tried to persuade him to go to Lhasa as their emissary and to persuade me and my government to agree to their domination. They promised to make him governor of Tibet if he succeeded. Of course he refused to do anything of the kind, but at last he saw that his life would be in danger if he continued to refuse, and he also saw that he had a duty to warn me of the Chinese plans. So he pretended to agree and thus managed to escape from Chinese supervision and reach Lhasa with a detailed warning of the dangers we were facing. By then the cabinet had taken steps to put our case before the United Nations. While we were waiting for it to be considered, it seemed to me that the first of my duties must be to follow the advice of the Indian government and try to reach an agreement with the Chinese before more harm was done. So I wrote to the Chinese government through the commander of the army which was occupying Chamdo. I said that during my minority, relations had been strained between our countries but that now I had taken over full responsibility and sincerely wanted to restore the friendship which had existed in the past. I pleaded with them to return the Tibetans who had been captured by their army and to withdraw from the part of Tibet which they had occupied by force. At the same time, my cabinet convened the National Assembly again in order to test public opinion about the threat which confronted us. One result of this assembly was very unwelcome in my eyes. 
The members pointed out that the Chinese armies might advance to Lhasa and capture it at any moment, and they decided that I should be requested to leave the city and go to the town of Yatung near the border of India so that I would be out of any personal danger. I did not want to go at all. I wanted to stay where I was and do what I could to help my people. But the cabinet also urged me to go and in the end I had to give in. This conflict was often to occur again, as I shall tell. As a young and able-bodied man, my instinct was to share whatever risks my people were undergoing, but to Tibetans the person of the Dalai Lama is supremely precious, and whenever the conflict arose, I had to allow my people to take far more care of me than I would have thought of taking of myself. So I prepared to go. Before I left, I appointed two prime ministers, a high monk official called Lobsan Tashi and a veteran and experienced lay administrator called Lukangwa. I gave them full authority and made them jointly responsible and told them they need only refer to me in matters of the very highest importance. It was in the minds of my ministers then that if the worst came to the worst, I might have to go to India for refuge, as my predecessor had done when the Chinese invaded us 40 years ago. I was advised to send a small part of my treasure there, so some gold dust and bars of silver were taken from Lhasa and put in a vault across the border in Sikkim and there lay for the next nine years. And there they lay for the next nine years. In the end we needed them badly. The next grievous blow to us was the news that the General Assembly of the United Nations had decided not to consider the question of Tibet. This filled us with consternation. We had put our faith in the United Nations as a source of justice and we were astonished to hear that it was on British initiative that the question had been shelved. We had had very friendly relations with the British for a long time and had benefited greatly from the wisdom and experience of many distinguished servants of the British Crown and it was Britain who had implied her recognition of our independence by concluding treaties with us as a sovereign power. Yet now the British representative said the legal position of Tibet was not very clear, and he seemed to suggest that even now, after 38 years without any Chinese in our country, we might still be legally subject to Chinese suzerainty. The attitude of the Indian representative was equally disappointing. He said he was certain a peaceful settlement could be made and Tibet's autonomy could be safeguarded, and that the best way to ensure this was to abandon the idea of discussing the matter in the General Assembly. This was a worse disappointment than the earlier news that nobody would offer us any military help. Now our friends would not even help us to present our plea for justice. We felt abandoned to the hordes of the Chinese army. Of course, looking back at our history now, it is easy to see how our own policies had helped 
to put us in this desperate position. When we won our complete independence in 1912, we were quite content to retire into isolation. It never occurred to us that our independence, so obvious a fact to us, needed any legal proof to the outside world. If only we had applied to join the League of Nations or the United Nations or even appointed ambassadors to a few of the leading powers before our crisis came, I'm sure these signs of sovereignty would have been accepted without any question and the plain justice of our cause would not have been clouded as it was by subtle legal discussions based on ancient treaties which had been made under quite different circumstances. Now we had to learn the bitter lesson that the world has grown too small for any people to live in harmless isolation. The only thing we could do was pursue our negotiations as best we could. We decided to give Ngabe the authority he had requested. One of the two officials he had sent to Lhasa took a message from myself and my cabinet in which we told Ngabe he should open negotiations on the firm condition that the Chinese armies would not advance any further into Tibet. We had understood that the negotiations would be held either in Lhasa or in Chamdo, where the Chinese armies were stationed, but the Chinese ambassador in India proposed that our delegation should go to Peking. I appointed four more officials as assistants to Ngabu and they all arrived in Peking at the beginning of 1951. It was not until they returned to Lhasa long afterwards that we heard exactly what had happened to them. My land and my people, the memoirs of His Holiness the Dalai Lama of Tibet. <laughs>